This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Exhausting moon capture, flat earthers, Sony CF Express, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 347 for Sunday, June 4th, 2023. And as usual, I'm covering the latest news stories for this past week that caught my eye from our good friends at Petapixel. So let's head on over there now and see what they have for us for this week. Incredible photo of the moon's path over a month was exhausting to capture. A determined photographer had sleepless nights, booked time off work, and even climbed a 170-foot tower so he could capture a stunning lunar analema image over Egypt that shows the passage of the moon over one month. Way Olmar says he's the first person to ever capture an anomaly over Egypt, a rare feat that requires skill and commitment. Omar tells Petapixel that the challenge was exhausting. Quote, the sequence of images was taken from April 22nd to 17 May 2023. The idea of the image is that the moon returns to its same position in the sky about 50 minutes, 29 seconds later each day. So I took an image of the moon 50 minutes, 29 seconds later on successive days over almost a lunar month from the same place every day. Due to the tilted elliptical orbit of the moon, this will result in a figure, uh, figure eight or infinity sign. Photographers can also make sun anomalies by capturing the sun in the same position at the same time each day over one year. A moon anomaly can be achieved in just one lunar cycle, but the photographer must return to the same position roughly 50 minutes later each day. The journey of this image was really challenging and exhausting. On top of the sleepless nights I went through to stay awake waiting for the scheduled time to take the image of the moon, explains Omar. There were also some cloudy nights, and I was a little lucky to see the moon through it uh, when the time to shoot came. I used a Canon 200D camera with an 18mm lens to shoot the images from the same location. I could see the moon in the images easily, but on the last week, the time of the images was almost daytime. That's why you will see the moon images on those days a little bit blue, he continues. Also, they were so faint, but I could see them when I zoomed deeply on the images, but of course the details were absent, so I come up with the idea to use my Goto mount to point to the location of the moon, as of course, it would be impossible to see it with the naked eye. Then I took an image of it with the help of my RedCat 51 scope, then I put it on the same location of the moon on the 18mm lens image. Omar says he used up vacation time to work on the project because of the unsociable hours it demanded and even went the extra mile to capture the stunning foreground picture that shows the pyramids of Giza. I exert too much effort to image the foregrounds as I climb up a 50 meter or 165 foot high minaret to have a clear view of the pyramids and blend this view with the total analema image, he says. 
I did everything I could and spared nothing to make this image successful. His dedication certainly paid off with a special image, and aside from being featured here on Petapixel, it was selected as Image of the Day on Astrobin. More of Omar's work can be found on his Instagram, which you can find in this article in the show notes. And I thought this was a really cool personal project, and his final image does look absolutely amazing, especially with the pyramids in the background. It just brings the whole thing together, in my opinion. Astrophotographer addresses fake image allegations from flat earthers. Backyard astrophotographer Andrew McCarthy took to Twitter to address accusations that his images are fake following his latest photo of the ISS crossing the moon. Specifically addressing people who believe that the Earth is flat and those who think the International Space Station does not actually exist, McCarthy advocates fighting ignorance with knowledge. Quote, my last image of the ISS brought a lot of interesting conversations to the thread, to say the least. Everything from the moon is a hologram to I'm paid by NASA to fake these images, he writes. I absolutely do not support or agree with being rude or verbally attacking people who say space is fake. They're wrong, yeah, but name-calling is contributing to the problem, not the solution. The moment you brand yourself as an enemy and attack someone's intelligence, you lose any hope of them ever coming back to a reasonable worldview, he adds. McCarthy goes on to say that space deniers are not stupid, but they have a distrust of organizations, which is a common attitude in the West. In fact, McCarthy even says he was once tempted by that worldview. When I bought my first telescope in 2017, I scoured the internet for tips on what I could see with it, he writes. Naturally, I stumbled on some flat-earth YouTube channels lured in with what the planets actually look like through a telescope or some other title. I watched some videos. The videos frame it up perfectly. How do I know what I was taught in school was correct? Well, I guess I really didn't. I just trusted my teachers. But McCarthy says that he was intrigued by the flat earth videos, which he says prey on a basic understanding of physics and a lack of education in astrophysics. The reason it didn't work with me, I had just bought a telescope and Jupiter and Saturn were in our skies at the time. My visual observation matched what I had seen in textbooks, not what these YouTubers were showing me with their Nikon Coolpix P9000 or 900s, he writes. They also said the ISS was fake, so I made it my mission to photograph it, and I did. I got lucky that this early photo of the ISS wasn't a misshapen blob like many of them are. Shooting the ISS is hard. Recently, Petapixel reported on a new European weather satellite that captured a stunning photo of Earth. Sadly, some of the discussion around the image focused on whether the Earth is flat and some people wondering if space is real. McCarthy's honesty about once being seduced by flat earth videos when he was younger is laudable and shows how even an intelligent accomplished astrophotographer could have a momentary lapse in judgment when he was less experienced. I'm not sure if there is a way to fix the cancerous spread of anti-space rhetoric, McCarthy adds. People are entitled to their beliefs and opinions as wrong as they may be. My suggestion, learn as much as you can about our universe. Fight ignorance with knowledge and remember before replying that other people get so jaded for a reason. They're only human. Treat them the way you would want to be treated and maybe they'll come around. Photographers such as McCarthy and space agencies such as NASA do a great job of bringing the cosmos to the general population, 
so people can learn about the objects in our solar system and wider universe. More of McCarthy's work can be found on his Instagram, Twitter, and website. And I thought this was a great article because McCarthy has done a lot of astrophotography, uh, different projects of his own. He has absolutely amazing work, and I laud him for that. And I also applaud him for not engaging into hostile tweeting uh, with flat earthers over this topic. So my hat's off to you, Andrew. Sony's new CF Express card has huge two terabyte capacity and an eye-watering price. Sony has reclaimed the title of largest CF Express Type A card with its new 1920 gigabyte capacity monster. That's a ton of storage, but it comes with a similarly high asking price. The nearly two terabyte card tops Angelbird's one terabyte card that launched in April and puts more emphasis on total storage capacity over anything else. While it promises maximum read speeds of up to 700 megabits per second, read speeds of 800 megabits a second, it doesn't necessarily hit those numbers all the time as it is only rated as a VPG 200 card. VPG, or Video Performance Guarantee, is a standard first created in 2011 by the Compact Flash Association and rates cards for their maximum sustained write speed so that primarily video shooters know what media are capable of recording high data rate footage. VPG 400 is the most commonly seen rating and states that the card will never dip below 400 megabits a second write speed. Sony's lower capacity CF Express Type A cards are rated as VPG 400, but this new 1920 gigabyte card prioritizes total storage over speed and is only rated as VPG 200, indicating it only promises to sustain a maximum of 200 megabits per second write speeds. Sony doesn't seem too bothered by this, however. For video shooters, the VPG 200 video performance guarantee rating enables stable recording at 200 megabits per second with no drop frames for an extended period, even when recording XAVC-S-I 4K footage and high bit rates, the company says. An original alloy with superior heat transmission characteristics is used to conduct heat out of the cards and maintain optimum performance. This results in long-term stability and reliable operation when internally recording the large volume of data required for 4K 120p video. The promise of stable 4K 120p recording is notable since few photographers would ever need a card with this massive capacity. In fact, many photographers are leery of relying on a single card to hold as many photos as a 1TB capacity card could hold, let alone double that. That high capacity also comes with a price, literally. Sony is asking $1,400 for this new card, more than double what Angelbird asks for its 1TB VPG 400 memory card. Shooters will have to decide if a slower, single 2TB capacity card is really worth 400 more than two faster 1TB cards. The Sony 1920 gigabyte capacity CF Express Type A cards will be available starting on June 19th. And it just kills me how these companies keep going back and forth with ever larger capacity CF Express cards. And I myself, I'm one of those people that don't believe in using a single extremely large capacity memory card just because there's, to me, there's too high a risk of possible failure 
no matter how good quality the card is. I prefer to uh, keep things spread out. I generally will buy 64 or 128 gigabyte cards, sometimes even 32s, and use those just because it gives me more peace of mind, as it does many professional photographers. So I know I'm not the only one out there who thinks that way. Photographic study reveals how dolphins survive shark attacks. Thousands of photographs have revealed how many of Australia's dolphins are living with shark-inflicted wounds. In one of the first studies of its kind, researchers from Flinders University collected and assessed thousands of photographs of dolphins in Australia to discover that many of them had serious scarring. While some scars are from fights between dolphins and others are most probably from boat strikes or other abrasions, appear to have been caused by sharp teeth. In an article published in Ecology and Evolution earlier this month, researchers revealed how dolphins are surviving attacks from bull, tiger, and white sharks in coastal waters across South Central and North Queensland. Researchers discovered high numbers of dolphins observed had evidence of shark-inflicted wounds. The study assessed thousands of photos taken from boat-based surveys, concluding that 33% of the 56 snubfin dolphins and 24% of 36 humpback dolphins identified show evidence of shark bites. Up until this study, little was known about the predation risk some dolphin species face from sharks or how frequently they survive these battles. According to the researchers, the study reveals the importance of considering photographic coverage when assessing bite injuries on animals. Caitlin Nichols from the Cetacean Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution Lab, CBEL at, or CEBEL at Flinders University, tells Yahoo News Australia that some of the bite marks seen on dolphins were extremely gnarly. Nichols uh, explains they are semi-circle bite marks, and you can see the punctures from their teeth. There's often dragging from where the dolphin has wriggled away. While these bites would have been fatal for a human, dolphins have fast-growing thick skin, enabling them to recover after attacks. When researchers had access to photographs of the whole dolphin, they were more likely to find evidence of scarring. A large portion of the bites were on the mid-flank, just below the dorsal fin. Quote, if they get bitten in this area, we think they're more likely to survive the attack, Nichols tells Yahoo News Australia. Whereas if they get bitten maybe on their head or tail, it's more likely to be a fatal attack because it would immobilize the dolphin and they would not be able to swim away. And I thought this was an interesting article, especially because I love dolphins and I love sharks. I love all wildlife and I love learning more about them. And I often wondered that there were probably a lot more shark attacks on dolphins than we previously realized. And it looks like that may be the case, especially in the coast, uh, off the coast of Australia, specifically Queensland area. So I thought that was a really cool and interesting article. All right, I'm going to take a break right here and then I will be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. 
The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag liamphotopodcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. The Nikon Z8 won't work with some third-party batteries, according to this report. A camera producing an error when photographers use unofficial third-party batteries isn't anything new. However, reports of possible digital rights management, DRM, being used in Nikon batteries, at least with its new Nikon Z8, is worth taking a closer look at. Spotted by Nikon rumors, it appears that Nikon might restrict customers to using original Nikon batteries in the Z8. In a private Nikon Z8 Facebook group, users are reportedly discussing the topic, too. While Nikon Rumors itself hasn't experienced an issue with third-party batteries on the Z8, there seems to be something going on. Popular YouTuber Lewis Rossman joined the discussion after seeing this highly upvoted post on Reddit's our privacy subreddit, or piracy, I'm sorry. The post that Rossman references in the video is a cross-post from our Nikon by photographer Sean the Mighty. In the original post, Sean the Mighty, who goes by Sean Molin on Instagram, writes, quote, if you planned ahead and picked up some extra batteries, just be prepared. These were specifically the BM Premium ENEL15C batteries, one of the more popular third-party ones, and I never had issues on the Z6 Mark II. Referencing a highly upvoted comment on our piracy about the Z8 battery error, Rossman says, quote, So this Nikon camera is telling the user, I see that you've installed a battery of your choice. No, no, no. You've got to buy a battery of our choice, which is most likely going to be made by us at an extreme markup. The reason this may aggravate the user is the OEM is going to mark up their accessories to an insane extent. Rossman describes the high prices that companies like Nikon and Sony charge for their accessories and says that he, like many others, go the third-party route to save money and not support what some consider aggressive and unreasonable business practices by major manufacturers. Is it DRM? What's interesting about this message is the part that says unable to provide data. Suppose, for example, the issue is that a third-party battery wasn't providing stable or consistent enough power to the Z8. In that case, it'd be reasonable to expect the message to say something else and not reference an inability to provide data to the camera. It's worth noting that Nikon had previously taken steps to curtail third-party batteries' use in its cameras. Back in 2013, Nikon released firmware updates for several camera models that rendered at least some third-party batteries unusable. At that time, it wasn't clear if that was an intended consequence of the firmware update or not. Still, the update did include changes to how the affected camera models determined the remaining charge of their battery. In 2014, the year following Nikon's third-party battery-breaking firmware update, Canon sent out a PSA telling its customers to stop using third-party batteries for their safety. The PSA included ways for photographers to tell authentic batteries apart from fake ones. Third-party batteries are one thing, and a product that camera companies themselves seem to take issue with, but perhaps more nefarious, are counterfeit batteries and chargers. 
Amazon and Canon allege that many bad actors are selling batteries and chargers that appear to be genuine Canon products. That's especially harmful because people believe they're buying a genuine product when they aren't. Nikon also got involved in a counterfeit battery issue in 2019 when B&H informed its customers that it had shipped out subpar Nikon batteries. The Nikon batteries weren't genuine and B&H, an authorized Nikon retailer, had sold customers counterfeit batteries. Some photographers have no qualms about using third-party batteries, but it's essential they, that people know that they're buying and using an unofficial product. Popular photography retailers also don't have any issue selling third-party batteries. Adorama and B&H sell various third-party batteries for a wide range of cameras. Many photographers choose to use third-party batteries at least as extra power supplies because they're much cheaper. But as there are, but are they just as good at a lower price? An exhaustive test showed how different batteries performed inside the Canon EOS R5 mirrorless camera. Despite claiming better performance than Canon's battery, the third-party offerings were all outperformed by Canon's pricier official battery. It may be easy to conclude that Nikon is using DRM and aiming to squeeze more money from its customers. As of now, that's way too big of a leap. For starters, it's not confirmed that any DRM is involved here. Until that's established, assume that the Nikon Z8 isn't doing anything special and that third-party batteries aren't being prohibited from use in the Z8 on a large scale. Some users are having issues with third-party batteries in the Nikon Z8, but that's as far as the story goes for now. However, there are important reasons why camera Cameras have historically not played nicely with certain third-party batteries. Cameras like the Z8 use lithium-ion batteries, which, if not thermally constrained and well-designed, can be very dangerous. An overheating battery can expand, catch on fire, and even explode, which would be horrific if a camera was up to someone's face, but also very dangerous if a camera was in a bag, in a car, or a house. Like photographers, camera makers don't want their cameras blowing up it would then make sense to prevent poorly made batteries from being used inside a camera. It's also possible for malicious third-party battery makers to try to get around the camera's thermal limitations. It's also sometimes the case that third-party batteries are accidentally dangerous as companies are motivated to cut corners in the constant battle to offer the cheapest solution. Importantly, not all third-party makers participate in the dangerous race to the bottom and certainly not at the cost of user safety. However, if Nikon really is using some DRM in its Nikon Z8 camera, how long before all the company's cameras reject third-party batteries? DRM doesn't always work, as evidenced by a Canon ink cartridge debacle last year. Due to a chip shortage, Canon couldn't put the proper electronics in its ink cartridges that are required for the DRM to work, so it had to advise customers about how to bypass its own DRM. It'd be devastating, especially to photographers, on a deadline if their camera started rejecting official batteries due to a software glitch or a faulty DRM chip. Rossman thinks it'd also be awful for customers' bank accounts. The third-party battery situation has been relatively static for years. While companies try to sell their more expensive accessories and occasionally cameras have had issues with specific third-party batteries for quality reasons, companies have rarely taken meaningful steps to prevent people from using whatever battery they want. If third-party batteries are no longer viable due to DRM, what might happen to the price of first-party batteries? Basic laws of supply and demand suggest that companies would inevitably begin charging more for their batteries and photographers may be left with little recourse against it.
A possible solution is to enable thermal monitoring and control in a camera's battery socket, which would add cost. Also, or another alternative is a soft DRM solution that warns customers about a third-party battery but doesn't prevent their use. There are ways to protect customers from risky batteries without outright stopping customers from being able to use them. That said, from a business perspective, making it easier or safer for customers to use unofficial accessories doesn't make sense. However, adding more credence to the idea that Nikon isn't using DRM in the Z8, the camera remains compatible with some very old Nikon batteries, including the now discontinued ENEL15A that was originally introduced in 2015. Petapixel reached out to Nikon for comment and will update the story when and if it hears back. And this is an interesting article, and I wanted to share this with my listeners because a few years back when I was still shooting Canon mirrorless, I used a Canon EOS RP for my real estate work. Now, Canon never made an official battery grip for that camera, but third-party manufacturers did. But the one thing that was interesting to me about it, and it made me wonder if that camera had some sort of soft DRM protection in it, was the fact that when I had the battery grip on the camera and actually used two genuine Canon batteries that I bought directly from Canon USA, sometimes when I first powered the camera on, it would claim they were counterfeit batteries and it wouldn't allow me to use the camera. And then I would have to turn it off, pop the batteries out of the grip, put them back in, boot it up again, and then the camera would work and it wouldn't give me any more problems the rest of the day. But I thought that was kind of odd and interesting, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to cover this story. Now, I want you to all be very careful about counterfeit batteries. And that's why I always say, if you're going to buy OEM batteries, buy them directly from Canon, from Nikon, from Sony, from Fujifilm, Pentax, whoever. Buy them directly from them on their website or from their official store on Amazon if you want to get them on there to get faster delivery. That's absolutely fine. But don't just buy any battery that claims to be made by your manufacturer because there are plenty of counterfeit batteries in the world. However, I do not tell my listeners to shy away from third-party batteries. Just make sure you buy good quality third-party batteries. Now, the ones in this story that were talked about earlier, the BM stands for Big Mike's, and I bought their batteries before for my Canons. And the funny thing about Big Mike's batteries is for some reason, they'll only charge in the charger that comes with them. They will not charge properly in the official Canon charger. And the Canon batteries won't properly charge in the Big Mike charger. So you've got to keep the batteries separated to their own chargers, which I always thought was kind of odd. Now, the batteries that I prefer, third-party batteries most of the time, are Wasabi Power. And the reason why I do is, number one, they're less expensive than my Fujifilm batteries or Canon batteries when I shot Canon. But they always give you a deal where you get two batteries and a double battery charger or a single battery charger. It just depends on the package and the price point. Um, but in my experience, I've never, ever had a problem charging Wasabi batteries in Canon's official chargers or Fuji's official chargers. As a matter of fact, I can leave my Wasabi powered uh, Wasabi power batteries in my X-T4's battery grip, plug the camera in using USB-C, and it'll successfully charge the genuine Fujifilm battery that's in the battery bay, as well as both the Wasabi power ones that are in the battery grip which is extremely convenient and uh, 
it makes things less time consuming for me. But again, be careful, especially about the counterfeit batteries. Now, if you want to buy third party batteries to save money, I absolutely do not blame you. But stick with some of the more reputable makers like Wasabi Power, Big Mike's, Jupio. Um, and there is also Power Extra, as well as Neewer has gotten into recently making batteries, especially for the X-T4. Now, one of the things I like about Neewer's batteries is they just sell you the battery, but in the box with the battery is a USB-A to USB-C cable. And the reason is their batteries don't require a separate charger. They actually have a USB-C charging port on one end, and the charging circuits are built into the battery. Now, Viltrox has started doing the same thing. I recently got a Viltrox LED light, a video light, a really nice one on Amazon, and it takes the same Sony batteries as the Atomos Ninjas and some other lights that I own, which I thought was really cool. Now, when I got the light, it did come with one battery, which I didn't realize whether it did or not, but I was like, no big deal. I've got several of those Sony batteries. It did come with one of Viltrox's batteries that are built to the same size specifications, power rating, and everything else as the Sony, I think they're like NP550s or something like that. Um, but I noticed when I took it out of the box that the Viltrox battery has a USB-C port on one end and the charging circuit built in. And I just got a spare battery off Amazon Vine, which I'm a member of, that came today. Uh, another one of the Viltrox batteries for that same light. So now I have two of Viltrox's official batteries. And the nice thing is, is both of them will charge just using USB-C cable, or I can put them in any of my Sony chargers and they'll charge that way as well, which I think is pretty slick. But I digress. Let's move on to the next news story for today. Bron Colors new $20,000 dual power pack works in studio or on location. Broncolor has announced the new Satos power packs that use a unique dual power system that can be equipped with conventional power supplies for studio use or with high performance batteries for on location use or a combination of both. The new Satos power pack took Broncolor nearly five years to develop. But that time has resulted in what the company says is the most advanced power pack system ever that is also joined by a new lamp. Broncolor says that the engineers wanted to create a pack that was not only highly performant, but also flexible, easy to use, and would last a long time. The system comes with the option to use two types of power. Broncolor says this approach not only allows the same system to be used in the studio and on location, but also significantly improves performance, especially in regions with low mains voltage, e.g. 110 volts, or areas with fragile power grids. The SATIS settings are adjusted in a few ways on a 5.7-inch multi-touchscreen via rotary push encoder or by classic buttons or an app interface or through a Python API. Every parameter can be adjusted to the smallest detail with the help of an intuitive user interface. The patented Broncolor technology allows the fastest flash times together with the highest consistency and color temperature over the entire control range of up to 12 f-stops, the company says. The Satos can shoot at up to 3,200 joules of flash energy. One joule of flash energy is equivalent to one watt second, an enormous level of power that can be distributed between one to three channels that are completely independent of each other, and the color temperature, delay, or a sequence function can be set individually 
for each channel as well. Previously, to trigger alternating flashes, multiple power packs were necessary. However, with SATOS, the alternating function be, can be accomplished using the three channels of a single power pack, eliminating the need for multiple power packs bronze color ads. SATOS is available in two power outputs, 3200 or 1600 joules. To accompany the SATOS, Broncolor has also announced the Pulso L lamp, which can communicate to the pack and vice versa. All regular settings can be made on the lamp and are synchronized with the system in real time. Quote, the Pulso L modeling and continuous light comes from a calibrated array of bicolored LEDs with a variable green magenta mix and an adjustable color temperature from 2800 Kelvin to 6800 Kelvin in continuous light mode, brown color says. For the finest adjustment within the light shaper, the position of the flash tube can be modified by a rotary wheel. The Pulso does have a traditional flash tube in addition to the LED. It's available in a 3200 or 1600 variant, which will only work with the same powered version of the Satos battery pack. This kind of performance doesn't come cheap. The Satos 1600 will retail for 14,695 euros or about 15,739 US dollars. And the Satos 3200 will cost 18,895 euros or about 20,237 US dollars. The Pulso 1600 will cost 2730 euros or about 2924 in the US, while the Pulso 3200 will retail for 3035 euros or about 3250 US. Broncolor expects to start shipping these units in July. And I thought this was interesting and I really love the fact that Broncolor is thinking outside the box and giving you multiple power options for this new system. I just wish it wasn't so bloody expensive. But such as life. What to expect at WWDC 2023? AR, VR headset, new Mac Studio, Mac Pro. Apple's annual Worldwide Developer Conference, or WWDC, commences tomorrow, Monday, June 5th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Petapixel will be on the ground for the keynote, and this list is what the Silicon Valley giant is most likely to release. WWDC often focuses on software, which will surely be part of Apple's keynote address, but there's a lot of smoke surrounding some exciting hardware announcements that could be on the horizon. Ordered by decreasing confidence level, below is a breakdown of what people can expect from Apple during Monday's keynote. Nearly certain iOS, iPadOS, macOS, watchOS updates. File this one under will be discussed. WWDC always includes unveiling new features for upcoming operating systems for Apple's wide range of consumer products, including the iPhone, iPad, Mac, and Apple Watch. There's no reason to believe that this year will be any different. Reliable Apple insider Mark Gurman of Bloomberg says iOS 17, iPadOS 17, macOS 14, and watchOS 10 are likely to be revealed during the WWDC 2023. There aren't many details about individual operating system updates, but iOS 17 is said to include a new smart display-like mode when placed, uh, when placed an iPhone in landscape mode that will show snippets of information. German adds that there will be a new journaling app, an upgraded wallet app, enhanced share play, an updated health app, health on iPad, and expa expanded accessibility features. As for new macOS version, it'll be an incremental update over macOS 13.4, primarily including compatibility with new features introduced on iOS 17 and iPadOS 17. 
Speaking of iPad OS 17, last year saw the introduction of many features to iPad that made Apple's popular tablet a better workhorse for productivity. German doesn't speculate about any specific new iPad features besides the new health app. Users hoping for iPad to become a closer facsimile to Mac notebooks may need to wait a bit longer. This is almost certainly the year the oft-rumored and long-awaited Apple Mixed Reality headset, which will reportedly combine augmented reality, AR, and virtual reality, VR functionality, should finally be unveiled. German claims it'll be an ultra-premium device constructed using glass, carbon fiber, and aluminum. Quote, it looks like a high-tech pair of ski goggles, features new magnetic charger for power, has a curved front with an external screen to show a wearer's facial expression and eyes, and several external cameras to enable the video pass-through, depth sensing, and hand control, writes German. The premium device is aimed at communication, content viewing, gaming, productivity, and even health. A source within Apple who worked on the device says it's part status symbol and part future of the computer. Ambitious claims. Inside the device are said to be a pair of 4K screens with AR powered by video pass-through technology. The headset will likely borrow design elements from other Apple devices, including a rotating crown like Apple Watch. Powered by an M2 chip and an external battery, the device promises a lot of performance and perhaps a somewhat lackluster battery life of around two hours per charge per German. The AR VR headset will have its own OS and include apps like Books, FaceTime, Files, Home, Mail, Safari, TV, Weather, and different wellness-oriented apps. Many third-party iPad apps are said to run on the device without any modification. It doesn't appear the new device will come cheap, as German expects it'll be priced at around $3,000 and begin shipping several months after its announcement. For people who require glasses, apparently the device is too thin to allow people to wear them, and they'll need to use a snap-in prescription lens system. There will very likely be at least one new Mac announced at WWDC. The most likely candidate includes a new 15-inch MacBook Air and an updated MacBook Studio. These new Macs will likely run on M2 Pro, M2 Max, and an all-new M2 Ultra chip. German says the M2 Ultra will include a 24 CPU cores and offer up to 76 graphic cores. This is an increase of four core CPUs and a dozen GPU cores compared to the M1 Ultra. German says that a new Mac Pro, a device Apple has promised, is also coming. Earlier this year, Petapixel reported that the new Mac Pro is close to releasing and will likely be Apple's most powerful computer to date. It'll be interesting to see how Apple enables expansion and upgradability for a new Mac Pro that has been an important focus for prior models, but seems much more challenging, given that Apple's M-powered computers to this point are not upgradable. German thinks a new Mac Pro powered by the new M2 Ultra may offer users up to 192 gigabytes of RAM. If a new Mac Pro is announced, especially if it has nearly 200 gigabytes of RAM, it's a safe bet that it'll be very expensive. Apple has never shied away from pricing its flagship desktop computers well outside the reach of the typical consumer. After all, they're not designed for anything resembling typical workloads. Marquez Lee Brown remarks on Twitter that if the new Mac Pro isn't shown on Monday, it's never coming. There's a lot on the line for professional Mac users, although Apple has given its prosumer and professional users a lot since a lot to like since launching the initial M1 chip.
there's a 50-50 chance of a new display. Apple's high-end studio display is very nice, albeit expensive. Apple's ProRes XDR from 2019 is even more costly, starting at an eye-watering $5,000. There have been rumors that Apple is preparing to announce a new display, perhaps a new iteration of its flagship Pro Display XDR, or a more affordable alternative to the studio display. However, Petapixel isn't confident about this rumor. Apple recently brought its popular non-linear video editing app, Final Cut Pro, to iPad. While Apple announced a shift from its one-time $299 purchase price to a subscription-based pricing model? Maybe. While Apple runs a relatively tight ship, there are rarely surprises in its WWDC keynote addresses. Reliable insiders like Mark Gurman almost always get the scoop and are frequently bang on with predictions. However, that doesn't mean a surprise is impossible, but it is unlikely. If a surprise happens, it'll be discussed on Petapixel on Monday. Petapixel's coverage of WWDC will include in-depth information about everything Apple announces on Monday as soon as the details become available. And I just thought that this was a good story to cover this week, mostly because of the announcement of the Final Cut Pro being on the iPad now. That's huge for photographers, or I mean videographers. Um, so that's a big one. And they're also offering Logic Pro 10, their audio editing software on the iPad as well, which can be very popular for, uh, or very handy for podcasters when they're on the road and other types of audio people, musicians, and so on and so forth. And I am a little bit intrigued to see what the AR VR headset's going to entail, but I have absolutely no interest in buying one. And not just because it's $3,000. I just have no interest in AR VR whatsoever. So don't really give a rat's behind about that new device. And last for today, breathtaking footage of 1,000 Lego astronauts flying to space. Two cameras captured 1,000 LEGO astronauts flying to the edge of space on a 3D-printed mini space shuttle. The voyage was powered by the stratospheric balloon that burst after taking the LEGO knots 22 miles above the Earth's surface, where they safely landed back on terra firma with the help of a parachute. Ah, this is definitely a cool story. The 3D-printed space shuttle was made from lightweight carbon composite material built by a team of space architects and engineers from... Slovakia in the Czech Republic. There were three separate space flights of roughly 330 Lego knots going up each time, and the team from Creative Gang, a marketing agency producing a Lego campaign, had to ensure none of the astronauts fell off the open-air shuttle. To make the figure stay on the space shuttle after the balloon burst was a major challenge, says Dominic uh, Matizinski, an executive at Creative Gang, tells Space.com. Quote, we wanted the figures to be exposed directly to space, not to be stored inside anything. But during the free fall stage before the parachute opened, they experienced speeds of up to 300 kilometers per hour, or 186 miles per hour. So that was a challenge. In an Instagram post, the creative gang explained that the Legonauts flew from uh, Malbless, a uh, airport near Dang. Parkizans in Slovakia on Saturday, May 20th, on a shuttle made of carbon fiber and 3D-printed stainless steel. Quote, they have landed in three different places and are ready to end their journey on your nightstand, the team jokes. This space feed of ours was captured by two cameras during the entire ride. One monitored the space, 
with the mini crew from the cockpit and the other attached to the shoulder, took a view of the entire platform. In the photos and videos, you can see breathtaking photos, photo shots of the Earth, as well as figures who are fully enjoying their flight into space. The stunt was a promotional campaign for Lego. Anyone who buys a new Lego set and registers it could win the Lego astronauts as a prize. More details are available on Creative Gang's website. And I just thought this was a really cool story. And I know Legos are extremely popular with many people. And I thought this was something cool. And I especially thought it was cool that they made a 3D printed space shuttle to house all these Lego knots. I thought that was really, really cool. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, as I said a moment ago, that wraps up episode 347 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, turn on all notifications, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media. Hit the bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. Also, make sure you get your entry in for my 10,000 subscriber giveaway. And you can find all of the details in the show notes for this episode on the official rules and how you can enter. And I did also want to thank all of you that were kind enough to support my friends at Platypod on their Kickstarter campaign for the Platypod handle. The campaign was super successful, and I wanted to thank you all for your support of my friends over at Platypod. Again, they are not a sponsor of the show. They're just friends of the show. Uh, Dr. Larry and Skip Cohen are two fantastic gentlemen, and I am proud to call them both my friends. And I thank you again for helping to make another Planapod Kickstarter campaign a raging success. Now, make sure you check out my new YouTube video that'll be out later today where I do my review of the Viltrox 75mm 1.2 Pro lens for the Fujifilm X-Mount. You're definitely not going to want to miss that video. And thanks to all of you who are current subscribers. I'm up to almost 6,500 subscribers, but I'm still hoping to get to 10,000 with your help. So please make sure you share the channel out with all your friends and family on social media and encourage them to subscribe and turn on notifications. All right, that is it for this one. I will see you all again on Thursday.